Hello, and welcome to Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode is part of our health IT series from the AMA Medical Students Section's Committee on Health Information Technology. My name is Maddie Drake, and I'm a medical student at McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. I'll be your host for today. We are delighted to introduce Dr. Robert Wachter, an expert in the field of medical error and patient safety and chairman of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. He has authored over 250 articles and six books on healthcare topics, including his 2015 New York Times bestseller on healthcare technology, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. Dr. Wachter, welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So just to start things off, uh, for some of our listeners out there who aren't as familiar with your work, could you tell us a little bit about how you're involved in the health IT space? Sure. I'm chair of a very large department at a big academic medical center, so I'm involved just because I see it up close and personal at UCSF. But my own personal involvement really began about 2013-14 when I just got very interested in the digital transformation of medicine and particularly why it was such a bumpy road. I, you know, I love my iPhone. I love Open Table. I love using uh, Bank of America's app. I, you know, all that kind of stuff. I just thought it was not going to be that hard, and I found it was much more challenging and many more unanticipated consequences than I expected. So I took a year of my life to really try to deeply understand this moment in healthcare when we were going from one way of doing work, non non digital, to another, and what was going right and what was going wrong, and. Since then, I've just remained very interested in the digital changes in medicine. Uh, I advise a bunch of different digital companies, so I have a pretty good view of, of life from Silicon Valley and see what's happening at startups and Google and places like that. And I just think there's no more interesting in health interest, interesting issue in healthcare than how we move from the old way of doing work to what I think will ultimately be a better way of doing work, but uh, it has been a bumpier road than I expected. Agreed. I think a lot of us are interested in seeing how that will pan out. So thank you for that introduction. Now, as you talked about, you have uh, almost four decades of experience in this field across multiple roles. So what do you feel is the impact of your work? And are there any challenges you've experienced along the way? Boy, I'm pretty old. Yeah. (laughs) Probably the most, I'd say the most impactful thing I did was I coined the term hospitalist in about 25 years ago. And so that became the fastest growing field in history. So I think I guaranteed my New York Times obituary with that. Um, but I, what I'm, I think my biggest impact really has been working with a lot of trainees and, and residents and students and fellows over the years and seeing them thrive. And that's the most gratifying part of my work. What my career has been really is, is um, I like to tell people that I'm what happens when a political science major becomes an academic physician. So that's what I was in college, and I've always been interested in how systems work um, and people and money and politics and culture and, um, and healthcare is just fascinating in that regard. So that, that sort of lens has taken me from trying to understand how to organize hospital care to trying to figure out ways of improving the safety of patients and commit fewer errors to... Uh, thinking a lot about the role of patient engagement and activism. I ran our residency at UCSF for a while, so I was very involved in medical education. Um, these days, I spend most of my time running a huge department with 3,000 people and half a billion dollar a year budget. So a lot of it is just decision making and herding cats and all of that. 
But uh, over the last six years, I really have gotten very interested in, in the role of technology. And so it fits into the broader theme of being interested in how healthcare sort of organizes itself. Obviously, to me, the goal seems obvious. We should be trying to figure out ways of delivering care that's better and safer and more equitable and less expensive. Uh, it doesn't always feel like we're doing that, but that it feels like that's the moment that we're at where we're trying to do that with digital. And then the final thing is the last 18 months, I've found myself uh, smack in the middle of COVID and started tweeting about it early and um, with the, sort of the same lens. I'm not an ID specialist. I'm, I'm a hospitalist. So I'm a general internist. I'm not an, I know a fair amount about epidemiology, but that's not exactly my field. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an immunologist. But I have kind of believed that there's a role for generalists who weave together the, the work of a lot of specialists to try to help people understand complicated issues. So that's a lot of what I've tried to do. And for COVID, it turned out that that lens has been very valuable for people. You know, I read the work of immunologists and virologists and vaccinologists and sociologists and psychologists and all that. And what I've tried to do is sort of weave it together into something that helps people manage through this pretty terrible time. Yes, and we're definitely going to get back to that COVID stuff. I'm excited to talk to you about that. Um, but you did touch on patient safety for a little bit, so I wanted to talk to you about your book as well. Um, so your book, The Digital Doctor, is centered around the story of a 16-year-old boy who was prescribed a common antibiotic but mistakenly given an overdose that nearly killed him. And it investigates how the interface of technology and healthcare might have led to this error. So what motivated you to write The Digital Doctor and what motivated you to base it off this specific case? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, what motivated me was, was my enthusiasm for technology in general and my naive belief that it wouldn't be that hard in healthcare. Um, and, and maybe particularly because I'd been involved in patient safety for 20 years and I, so many errors th that I saw, I just said to myself, boy, if we just had technology, this wouldn't have happened. You know, people killed because the pharmacist misread a doctor's prescription because it was scribbled on a piece of paper. And I just said, wow, you know, if we just had digital, that wouldn't happen. And, you know, people whose lung cancer was misdiagnosed because there was one copy of the film and it sat in a reading room in a, in a radiology department. So never made it to the primary care doctor's office. So just felt like it should be pretty straightforward and, and, and you know, without question, it would be better than, than what we had before. And I just saw, you know, doctors and nurses, you know, railing against their computers once we had them and talking about burnout and unhappiness and, and often errors. And I, that just surprised me. And so I'd been noodling over the idea of trying to write about this. And then one day at UCSF, which is a terrific hospital with great people and the best electronic health record that a few hundred million dollars can buy, we ended up giving a kid a 39-fold overdose of a common antibiotics, uh, Septra or trimethoprim-sulfa. So he was supposed to get one pill, and, and a nurse actually gave him 39 of these pills. He had a grand mal seizure. He spent a week in the ICU. Just by dumb luck, he didn't die. And uh, I'm pretty sure he'll never have a urinary tract infection for the rest of his life. We gave him enough antibiotic that'll last him for a while. And as I participated in the analysis of that error, we call root cause analysis, trying to understand how that happened, it became obvious to me that, that although our technology prevented a bunch of errors, this particular error could not have happened <clears throat> when we were on paper. It actually happened because of the interface between the tech and the people. 
And everything from the initial sin here was that the doctor meant to write uh, the number of milligrams that uh, in 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 the dose, but the computer was set to milligrams per kilogram, and so it multiplied his weight, which was thirty nine kilograms, and calculated a dose of thirty nine pills, which was an absurd dose. It'd be like driving down a highway and seeing a sign that said speed limit is twenty five hundred miles per hour. It was it's it's a ridiculous dose, and so you figure okay computer glitch, it'll get caught. But then there were about five to 10 opportunities down the line where it should have been caught and it wasn't. And in each case, it was an alert that people ignored because they get hundreds of alerts a day and most of them are, are false positives. It was a, an old, in the old days, a pharmacist would have picked up the, the, the bin of antibiotics and started pouring them out. But now that pharmacist has been re replaced by a robot. And the final kind of the the Daniel Mana, the case was the nurse saw this order for 39 pills, said to herself, this is weird. I can't believe 39 pills, really. And then she said, but the computer says that's right. So the computer must be right. So she trusted the computer over her own instinct. And when I saw that, I said, this is so complicated, so interesting, so rich, so unexpected that I think there's a book there. And so, and I knew the only way to write it was to approach it journalistically, like to go out and talk to a ton of people, doctors, nurses, computer executives, people who, who looked at computer engineering in other industries and nuclear nuclear uh, power and in aviation. And when I after I did that for about a year, I felt like, oh, I now kind of understand this in a way that I didn't before. And I actually didn't think anybody did because it really took this kind of broad view in order to truly understand all parts of the elephant. And so it was incredibly interesting and rich experience. And, and uh, I'm very, very glad I did it. Yeah. And such a powerful message too. Um, so what do you believe is the future of physicians and technology after going through this process and writing that book over that year? Um, and what has to change in order for a more synergistic relationship among technology, physicians, and patients? Well, I think the future is 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 bright. I, I actually came to you know the book is twenty eight grumpy chapters and one really optimistic chapter. And people who read that optimistic chapter said, "Did you have a ghostwriter?" Because all of a sudden you talk about how it's all going to work out. And I said, "No, that was me. I really do believe it is all going to work out." But it's about a probably a fifteen to twenty year journey, and it's not a five year journey because we have to bump around for a while. The technology needs to get better, but more importantly, your generation has to take over because my generation only knows how to practice on paper. And when we put in computers, and we're not any stupider than any other generation, it's just typical of humans that we're not creative enough to really see the opportunities. So what we tend to do with technology is to replicate what we used to do with paper. And sometimes it makes it a little bit better. Sometimes it actually makes it worse. Uh, what you see in other industries that have computerized is it takes about a decade for the computers to really achieve the benefits. And that decade is not only for the technology to get better and iteratively better and go through version one and two and 12 and 37, but really for a new generation to come in and say, why are we doing this this way? You know, why does the, the, the patient's record in a chart, in, you know, if you use Epic or Cerner, what does the patient? What does the doctor's note of the patient's record look like? It looks like a piece of paper, and you find it under a tab. Why? Because we weren't any more creative than to say, "Oh, we're going to computerize it." What does a doctor's note look like? It looks like a piece of paper under a tab in the chart, in a paper chart. So that's what we did on computer. If you were doing it, I'm guessing you would say that's stupid. 
you know, let's look at how Twitter has a, you know, Twitter uh, feed or a Facebook wall or a Google Doc or, you know, Wikipedia. You would look at collaborative charting. You would look at easy ways of inserting audio and video. You would look at threaded conversations between people as they kind of work through a complicated problem. So that's sort of what has to happen. You have to, and sometimes in the literature, people talk about reimagining the work. And nobody's creative enough to do that when they start. And so I think that has to happen. The technology has to get better. One of the exciting trends is that now that everything is digital, you're starting to see the entry of a lot of Silicon Valley companies, a lot of startups, Google, Amazon, Apple getting in. You, it, we've sort of had the starting gun for, for a lot of companies getting involved in this. And in the beginning, they didn't want to because it was too complicated because if, if, if the, all, the, all the data is being stored in a paper chart, there's really nothing for them to do. But now the amount of investment, the amount of interest from technology companies is, is really large. What has to happen is we need those companies, but we also need the engagement of clinicians and of patients because the companies will come in and they'll say, well, I reinvented the way you uh, buy things or I reinvented the way you make your restaurant reservations. I reinvented the way you buy a house. And I've worked with all these companies. And they have a lot of hubris. They think that they, because they understand real estate, they understand healthcare, and they they end up leaving with their tail between their legs. So we really need it to be a much more collaborative environment with 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 clinicians, and administrators, and patients working with technology companies. And I think we're getting to that stage now. That's great for perspective, and certainly exciting and inspiring as someone who's like coming up in my career and interested in all this. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Um, now, Twitter has been mentioned a couple times throughout this interview so far, and I myself enjoy using Twitter to keep up with news and leaders in medicine and things like that. And so I've happened to notice you are a prolific tweeter, and um, the Wall Street Journal has highlighted your Twitter account for providing credible information during the COVID-19 pandemic. So could you talk a little bit about your experience using Twitter and do you feel like your Twitter feed has had a large impact? Uh, I think so. You know, I just tweeted today that I'm now comfortable going out to restaurants in San Francisco and that's gotten like a thousand people liking it. And people say crazy stuff like I follow what Bob says he does and now, okay, I'll start going to restaurants. I think people have been looking for credible sources and people they trust to sift through all of the literature, which changes all the time and the facts change. And if you're, you know, you're a poor patient or regular person to understand COVID, you needed to understand, you know, virology, epidemiology, vaccinology, exponential spread, herd immunity. You know, no normal person knows anything about that stuff. So it, I think the they were looking for someone who they felt was a credible expert who was going to keep his or her eye on the literature and the emerging science and then try to translate it in a way that was accessible. 
And so there are a bunch of people like that out there, but I'm, I think I'm proud of the fact that I think I'm one of them and people seem to follow me. Um, you know, when, when COVID started, I already had maybe about 18,000 followers, which I thought was pretty good. I'm up to about 200,000 now. So I have no illusion that has anything to do with me. It has to do with the demand uh, for everybody to like find out how to live their life in the face of COVID. So it's been pretty gratifying. I've loved Twitter as a way of me keeping up. I mean, just as a mechanism for me to sort of figure out what's new in the literature. I follow people who I respect, who I trust, and the ability to sort of follow them and see what they're thinking about and doing, and then take that and translate into something that other people find useful. I find pretty gratifying. You know, there have been part times where it's, it, you know, people get obnoxious and, and um, just overreact to things. And, and I think I am, as a white guy, I think I, I catch less flack on Twitter than I hear from my colleagues and friends who are not uh, white guys. And I, I'm quite sensitive to that and try to elevate the voices of other people. Uh, but overall, I think it's been a very positive experience and I wish I'd invented it. I obviously be a little wealthier than I am now, but I think it was a really smart idea to sort of create a curated, a way to curate your reading and watching and listening list uh, by choosing people to you follow and then seeing what they're interested in, what they're following. Absolutely. <clears throat> and you mentioned kind of um, catching flack on Twitter and that, and that, you know, does happen. So what keeps you motivated to continue to disseminate information on Twitter? Well, the positives outweigh the negatives 100 to 1. And, you know, I, I'm pretty careful about not getting too far out over my skis. And, you know, when I say something, it's because I'm pretty confident it's true. Now, sometimes I'll say something and it turns out it was true, but COVID just has curveball after curveball. So things change and that's life. Um, you know, when I, but I'm, I, I, you know, I'm quite sensitive to the fact that a whole lot of people are reading what I write and, and, uh, you know, one of the nice parts is I just click, you know, tweet and I don't have to go through an editor or peer review and all that. That's awfully nice. Uh, on the other hand, it's a, you know, with uh, it, 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 it means that I've got to be very thoughtful about what I'm putting out there. And I try to be careful to not put out there things that are sort of unduly inflammatory. In the beginning, I wasn't doing anything really political, but in 2020, there came a time where it became clear to me that it was irresponsible not to be political because masks were falling along political lines and vaccines were. And if you were, weren't going to comment on that, then I, you know, I think people who read you, whether they're reading your book or reading your Twitter feed, are one of the things they're trying to figure out is can they trust you and are you being authentic or are you holding things back? So if the issues are political, I don't see how you, you shy away from that if you're going to ask people to trust you. And uh, I don't get overtly political. I don't get more political than I think I need to be. But I don't see how you opine on COVID without sometimes wading into the political waters. It's just a fundamental part of, of, of what's determining our response. Absolutely. So do you think physicians and students should be involved in these social media efforts? And what advice do you have for those that are interested? I don't know. Should seems pretty strong. I, you know, I... I find Twitter to be a really useful way to, I'm, I'm just really interested in learning things. And particularly with COVID, the things change every minute. And so I think Twitter is better than anything I've seen as a mechanism to sort of 
sift through tons of stuff and just say, here are people whose opinions I trust. I'm, I'm, that's the way I'm going to follow. And it's not the only mechanism I have to do, to do that. I read a couple of newspapers every day and listen to four or five podcasts and try to keep up in a lot of different ways. But I think it's been a particularly useful mechanism to keep up on COVID. And, you know, by extension, there's a whole lot of amazing stuff on Twitter. Med Twitter is fantastic. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there. So even if you're not going to be an avid tweeter, I think it's worth considering as you try to think through what are going to be my mechanisms as a busy person, uh, uh, trying to figure out what I'm interested in, what I want to keep up on and, and, and doing that. Uh, and even when it comes to medical journals, you know, 20 years ago, I used to read cover to cover the New England Journal and JAMA and the Annals of Internal Medicine and a couple other. I read fewer things cover to cover because I kind of depend on Twitter to, to point me to a great article, maybe in a journal I don't normally read. So that's been useful. Now, whether it's worth tweeting, I think that's a judgment call because for a lot of people, you know, you're going to tweet and not many people are going to read it. And so that's a little, little depressing in the beginning. But for my faculty, I encourage them to tweet because if you think about it, all of us are kind of in, we, we're trying to develop a brand. We're trying to develop a set of ideas and things that we do that we want other people to read and, and pay attention to and make an impact. And so I think Twitter is a pretty useful way to do that. And I, you know, I think in the old days to say to faculty, well, that's kind of beneath you. You should, you know, you should be concentrating on getting your things in science and cell and New England Journal of Medicine. That's fine. I think those are, you know, that's important. But you're really trying to get the word out about what you're thinking about, what you care about, what's important, what you're reading. So I think it's worth at least exploring the possibility of tweeting as one way of doing that. Awesome. That's great advice. Thank you. And finally, in addition to your Twitter account, are there other channels where people can connect with you and follow your work? I, you know, I have a fair amount of stuff out in the normal medical literature. I periodically do op-eds and major newspapers, but I think for me, Twitter has been the best mechanism to do that. But in addition to that, you know, people write me all the time and my email is pretty public. And if people want to get in touch with me, that's a pretty easy way to do it too. Well, everyone, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. And thank you for your time today, Dr. Walker. This has been Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Making the Rounds and other great AMA podcasts wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcast. Thanks so much.